importance of the church by talking and looking at the importance of the church to God. For the church is not an invention of man, but a purpose of God. Because what he did is he calls us out. In fact, the word in the Greek that's uh, translated in most of the verses in the Bible, church, is the word ekklesia, meaning called out ones. We've been called out from darkness, called out from lostness. We've been called into his glorious, amazing light. And he's been called together to be the, the church. Then we looked at that call by the writer of Hebrews, man who had been saved out of Judaism, ritual, religion, religion. And, and ritual and the, about the importance of the church to the development of our, of our faith. So much of what we learn about the Lord Jesus Christ and about life serving God, we discover through the church, whether it's at a church building or through a church ministry or a church activity. We learn so much about God through the church. Uh, and I love the, 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 phrase, the, the statement of Cyprian back in the third century. He said, no one can have God as father who does not have the church as mother and the importance of the nurturing role of the church in our lives. Then we looked at the epistle uh, written by Jesus' disciple Peter about the importance of the us, about us being together, of us walking together, serving together, loving together, ministering together. And he was talking to a group of churches in, in Asia Minor. They said they need to grasp the importance of the collectivity of the church. Then uh, now today we turn to the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28. You're going to go, man, that's a real familiar passage. It really is. It's one we, we, we sometimes read at different accounts and different moments and different events. But I want you to remember that Jesus has already resurrected from the dead. He had invited his disciples, his close compadres, to come and meet him uh, near uh, the Sea of Galilee on the side of a mountain uh, I studied this week trying to figure out which mountain that was, and the scholars all said this, we don't know. They have all kinds of theories, but really the Bible doesn't tell us because I think the importance is not the location, but what happened at the location. I think that's why we're not allowed to know what that is. But at this place, Jesus makes plain the importance of the called out ones, that's us, to the world. Can you imagine with me if all of a sudden the influence of the called out ones, the church, was removed instantaneously from the world, what the world would look like? Some of you would say, well, the world's pretty much a mess right now. There's a control rod still in place of the presence of God's people. And if we were gone, the world would be a different place that we wouldn't even imagine what it would be like. And so I want to talk to you this morning about the importance of the church to the world. The world needs us and what he calls us to do. And so I want to just break down these three verses real quickly this morning. You're thinking five points. You have five points, probably no more than three hours. We'll be good. Okay. Some of you heard that. It won't be that long, I promise. Pick up in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, to who? to his disciples, to his apostles who have gathered with him on the side of that hill or mountain in uh, northern modern Israel. He says, it says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? To him. And you're going, now what does that mean? Let's just break it down. The first thing I want you to notice about this passage is this. Jesus leads his church. Who's his church? 
If you're a called out one, if you've trusted Christ as Savior, you'd want to raise your hand and say, I am part of the church. I have been called out. I have been set apart. Therefore, who is my leader? Jesus and nobody else. Jesus makes it very clear, crystal clear, as I wrote it in my notes, that he is supposed to lead the church. He's the one to lead the church. Standing there in his resurrected form, Jesus speaks to the 11 men and it reminds them as they're being faithful to their call that he's the one who's called them. He's the one that called them all the way back at the Sea of Galilee three years before, the verse we read earlier. They needed to understand they had a role to play in spreading the gospel. He says, I'm in charge. I'm the boss. I'm the leader. I am a savior. He alone holds the place of supreme authority. And as such, he has the final say. Your final say on what? Yeah, whatever you want to put in the blank. He has the final say on the call for your life. He has the final say on what he needs you to be a part of in the kingdom. He has the final say on everything. You're going, well, I thought that was our job. No, that's his job. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, these 11 men standing there that day listening to him speak, if you look at their lives, what you find is they went off in some pretty interesting directions. Follow with me. According to Christianity Today, they, they wrote an article a few years ago and gave us a list of where the different disciples ended up according to historians and archaeologists. That's what we're doing up here all week is studying different ways to understand about God's word. Let me give you the list, the short list. Peter. You know, he, he was one of Jesus' disciples. He was in that close inner circle. He ends up going west where he ends up in Rome, and he was martyred around 66 A.D. Let me, let me clarify. Martyred means he was killed, okay, for his faith. Andrew went north into what was called, according to archaeologists, the land of the man-eaters. The land of the man-eaters. You're going, where in the world is that? Think Russia. You're going, Russia? Yeah, that part of the area north of the Black Sea, up into that area there, we call Russia. The believers in that part of the world believe that Andrew was the one who brought the gospel to them first. Thomas most likely traveled east through Syria before making his way to India where he was pierced through the heart. When you're pierced through the heart, it means you are dead. Philip went west to Carthage, which is modern Tunisia on the north coast of Africa, before he traveled to Asia Minor where God used him to witness to a woman uh, and lead her to Christ who was the wife of a Roman leader who then had him killed because his wife met Jesus. So much for sharing the gospel. Matthew traveled south to Ethiopia. East coast of Africa, where he was likely martyred. Bartholomew likely traveled with Thomas to India before coming back to Armenia and Arabia, where he died a violent death. James traveled north and east to Syria, where he shared the good news before he was stoned and clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot went to Persia, modern-day Iran, where he shared the gospel before being killed for refusing to make sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias took him... uh, uh, to Syria, God took him to Syria along with Andrew where he was burned to death. John, the only disciple who died a natural death, he was exiled. And oh, by the way, he was also boiled in oil. Wow. What these men have in common is this. They listened to the voice of Jesus and did what he told them to do. And most of them, it cost them their life. They served wherever God had them to go. 
when Jesus is the authority, when Jesus is the head of the church, when Jesus is the one who leads, he sometimes sends us into dangerous locations. Not always, but sometimes. It leads me to this thought. Jesus alone is the head of the church. You know, over the centuries, churches have, have, have tried to organize themselves in, in a myriad of ways. I've got some friends in a church uh, that's dear to my heart that's going through a transition right now. And, and they're moving from uh, a, a committee structure or team structure to an elder structure. And I've had some conversations with some of my friends, and they go, I don't know if that's right. I don't think that's biblical. I don't think that's this. And I'm here to tell you, I'm not in favor of elder structure. That's not where I'm going with this conversation, so don't jump ahead of me. But what I want you to hear is this. There are various ways within Scripture that are biblical ways to organize and structure a church as long as Jesus is the head of the church. It's just a preference. Some churches structure with uh, committees. Some structure with uh, elders. Some structure with bishops in a hierarchy. That's not us as Baptists, but you're going to hear a lot on the news this week about Baptists, by the way. Just get ready. It's that, week. it's that week Southern Baptist Convention meets. You'll hear news reports. But I want you to hear this. God uses elders. God uses committees. God uses teams. God uses deacons. God uses pastors. And he uses whatever avenue in place to accomplish his purpose as long as he's the head of the church. When a group of people claiming to be the church rejects the leading of Jesus, something's very much wrong. Remember what Jesus said to these same men these three years before when he called them. He said what? And Jesus says to them, follow me. How many of you like to follow? Most of us are not good followers. Most of us want to do our own thing. Many of us are type A personality. You know what that is, don't you? I'm the boss. I'm learning as I age. I don't want to be the boss. I want Jesus to be the boss. I want Jesus to lead my life. I want Jesus to lead our church. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He alone must be our leader. So he leads us. There's a hymn like that. Second, he sends us. He sends his church. Look at verse 19, the first half. He says this, go therefore... And do what? Make disciples of all nations. Why does God bring together a diverse group of people like you and me into what is called the local church? What are we here for? Why have we shown up? Why are we committed to one another? Why are we connected with each other? Why are we choosing to serve together? I believe the answer to that question begins right here. We're called to make disciples of where? All nations. Literally, that means all people groups, all nations, all around the world, whatever the race, whatever the nation, whatever the geography, whatever the location, that is our calling. And the task is clear to make disciples where? Everywhere. But what does it mean to be a disciple? A disciple is simply this, a lifelong learner. Meaning that as the church follows her leader, our task is to participate in the most important job on the planet, which is this, helping others to hear, answer, and then follow Jesus. Everything we do 
should be seen through the lens of that call. Why do we sing specials as a choir? Because we love the way we sound. I hope they sound good, Harold. You've got a great guy who leads them. But that's not the point. The point is to show them who? Jesus. Why does the guy get up and talk for 30 minutes or hopefully less on a Sunday morning? Why? Because he just loves to hear himself talk. Oh, listen, I hate to hear myself talk. I made him turn the speakers off when I came here because I don't want to hear me. But I'm here to what? Tell you about Jesus. Why do we have Sunday school classes? Great fellowship. Yes, we better have that. But why do we have that? Study the Bible. Yes, we need to have that to help the discipleship process. But if it's all about who? Jesus. To make them disciples. A disciple is a lifelong learner, meaning our task is to participate in the most important job on the planet, helping others hear, answer, and follow Jesus. So our big thought here is this. We don't want to become stumbling blocks to others. We don't want to do stuff that messes up their ability to see Jesus and hear Jesus and follow Jesus. When we do that, we're off track. We will not, we must not be in hindrance to those who need to find Jesus. So we work together, and he listens, and we listen to our leader, and he sends us on. So here, here's what I want you to catch. Here's my thought to go with this. If you really follow Jesus, then guess what? You've already got your marching orders. I always find it interesting. People who've trusted Christ for years will go, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Have you read the book? Have you read the instructions? For those of you who really answered Jesus and his call to your life to live a personal, living, vital relationship, he's already given you direction. He's already given the marching orders. We profess to follow Jesus, but then we wander around with no direction. Why? This is a recipe for disaster. For without discovering God's direction in life, we will find ourselves doing what we feel instead of what he wants. And that is a recipe for a mess. Let me tell you what, if I waited to... serve Jesus until I felt like serving Jesus, I'd probably still be waiting. One old preacher always said this. He said, if you'll do right, you'll feel right. If you'll do the right thing, then the feelings will come along. So many of us go, well, I just don't feel like it, so I'm not going to do it. No, that's the wrong way. Don't wait for the feelings. You wait for the feelings, guess what? It may never happen. You make the decision that says, I'm going to do what Jesus told me to do, the feelings will come along behind. Our call is to grasp what he's told us so far and then do those things. And I can guarantee you, if you're a follower of Jesus, he's already sent you. He not only saved you, but he equipped you. And he has prepared you to do certain things in the kingdom of God. The writer of Hebrews prayed this. He says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the feet of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom in glory forever and ever. Amen. When God saved you, he equipped you. When God saved you, he prepares you for the place of service he has for you. He doesn't leave you hanging there going, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. He's got something for you. Just figure out what it is. You go, well, I'm afraid I'll fail. You know what I've learned? It's okay to fail. It's not okay to try. It's not okay to not try. Excuse me. Let me say that again. It's okay to fail. It's not okay to not try. Go try it. God will show you if it's not where you need to be. 
It's not a failure. It's a learning experience. So he leads his church. He sends his church. Third, he identifies his church. He, look at verse 19, the second half. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the undisputed leader of the church. He sent each of us with a mission to fulfill. But how do we know who's on the team? In God's sovereignty, he chose one action, one act done properly that serves as the marker for each of us to be identified with him. What is that? It's not walking an aisle. Walking an aisle started about the 1700s. That's a relatively new invention. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a method God uses, but that's not it. Putting your name on the church roll, that, that'll get you on a church roll. You know that God doesn't cross-reference his admission requirements to our church role. Did you know that? I think it's important to be connected to the church. We want to be part of a church. We're talking about church for five weeks, so we're not against it, but, but that's not the way we get there. The one action that the Bible tells us is this, is what we call believer's baptism. In the New Testament, this act serves not as the moment of salvation, rather it's the moment of identification with the body of Christ. It's an act done because you have already trusted Christ as Savior. It is not an act you do to become a follower of Jesus. You're going, wait a second, I have friends of mine that they got baptized and they joined the church because that's how, they, 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 that's how it works. That, I'm a, I want to be real sensitive here. You may have friends who go to churches, that's how they work. But I got to tell you, that's not the biblical model. The biblical model is we trust Jesus and then we're baptized. You go, well, how old do you have to be to do that? Well, you can be young and you can be old, but there's an act that happens first. And that's profession of faith in Jesus. Does that mean that baptism and other churches that do it like sprinkling or as babies, do they have no value? I'm going to tell you, I used to think they have no value. I believe that they do have a value because they serve as, a, as an encouragement to the family to do the right things. But it is not biblical baptism. You say, well, I was sprinkled as a kid. Is that all I've got to... Those are great. It means your parents loved you enough to get you to church. Thank your parents for doing that. A lot of parents anymore don't do that. They take them to school if they have to. They might drop them off at the church. But many of them don't come anymore because they don't see the importance of it. That's an important thing that they did. But it's not salvation. That leads me to this. Baptism serves as our identification into the revealed body of Christ. Can a person be a follower of Jesus without being baptized? Absolutely. You know, how do you know that? There's a biblical example of it where we know it happened. So it can happen. Do you remember the guy on the cross next to Jesus? And he said, uh, would you remember me this day when you come into your father's kingdom? And Jesus said to him, sorry, we got to get off the cross and get you baptized first. That's not what he said. What he said was this, today you will be with me in paradise. The man was never baptized, but he was saved. There's another model found in the book of Acts, and I want you to, to see this when it's going to be on the screen. Uh, Philip uh, had shared with the gospel with a guy named, uh, with, we don't know his name, an Ethiopian uh, on the road to e Egypt and on his way home to Ethiopia. And he placed his faith in Jesus, and as they were going, and it says this, verse 36, Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? By the way, the word baptized literally means immerse. Completely under, dunked. And Philip said, 
If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son, Christ, the Son of God. He was then immersed and he went on to Egypt and down to Ethiopia, back home uh, to the Candace. Salvation is not found in baptism. Baptism identifies us as part of the body of Christ. We need to keep those straight. So Jesus leads his church. He sends his church. He identifies his church. He also informs his church. Look at verse 20, verse A. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Now, with Jesus as the leader of the church, he's given us an important task. He's given us a way to identify who's part of the body. He also calls us to be informed. One of my favorite characters in the New Testament outside of Jesus and Peter, because I can identify with him, is Thomas. You know, Thomas. A lot of times we call him Doubting Thomas. Why do we do that? He wasn't doubting. I don't think he was doubting. I think he was human. I think you guys got a bum rap. You know, you know, you know what a bum rap is, don't you? It's where people think things about somebody, but it's not true. He's got a bum rap. As Jesus was about to make his last journey to Jerusalem, he taught his disciples about the nature of the kingdom, where they were going, what they were doing, John chapter 14. Thomas expressed a common sentiment when he confessed this, I don't know where you're going. I don't know what you're doing. Can I tell you something? That's, that's my feeling with God a lot of times. God, what are you doing? Where are you leading? What in the world are you doing in my life? Any of you can, can any of you relate to that? Why is this going on? He did not have a confession of doubt. He had a confession of want to know. He wanted to know. But get this. When Jesus stood on that mountain just before his ascension, he commands his followers to teach everything he'd commanded. His word was to tell them who followed Jesus all about what he had taught. And he reveals Christianity is not merely a walk of faith, though it is a walk of faith. It's also a life to be lived with understanding. One of my favorite times of Sunday morning is sometime between 9-ish to 9.45-ish. You're going, what goes on in our church during that time? Everybody's coming in. And, and the ones who are coming in at that hour, you know what they're coming in to do? To fellowship with brothers and sisters in the Sunday school class. But they're also coming in to learn more about God's word. To learn more about who God is. Sunday school, by the way, has only been around for about 300 years. Sunday school is not a biblical action. But it is a biblical activity of gathering together and becoming informed about God's word. Aren't you grateful for Johann, Johann, Mr. Gutenberg? Only his name's Johann. That didn't sound right. You're going, who? You know, Gutenberg. The guy who printed what you're holding your hands. The first guy to ever print the Bible in the language that you and me, we could read. We didn't have that till the 1400s. Now we can actually have our own copy to lay in the back window of the car and ignore. We have our own copy that we can carry and read and study and let God speak to us. Wow, how blessed, how blessed we are. Here's my application. I'm, I'm running short on time. Followers of Jesus are expected to learn what Jesus taught. We are the most blessed generation on the planet when it comes to this. 
You know how many translations there are in English? Yeah, me either. There's so many I don't even know anymore. You know, you can have your Bible in a book. You can have it on your phone. You can have it on a tablet. You can have it read to you in the morning while you're getting ready. We have so many ways to hear the words of Jesus, to learn the words of Jesus, to live the life of Jesus. I firmly believe Christianity, and me and Paul are part of called out ones, carries an important portion that is based on learning. It's certainly true we need the faith of a child. But once we have that faith, it is incumbent upon us to grow in the knowledge of Jesus. Peter said this in his second letter, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that means? You got to grow. You go, well, I trusted Jesus. I'm good. Technically, you're right. But in reality, I believe that's a wrong thought. That's like saying, I got married December 27th, but I hadn't seen her since. We're married, but we don't have a relationship. You think it would have lasted? See, we need to spend time with Jesus. Growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord clearly reveals a process. We're making progress. Some days slow, some days fast, some days somewhere in between. But progress is part and parcel of the walk. The world needs you and me as followers of Jesus to make progress on a regular basis toward the likeness of Jesus. It's hard sometimes to see that progress, but if you take just a minute and look back a year or 10, or 20 if you're old enough, or 40 if you're old enough, and you see the progress that God's working, you can understand that he's not done with you yet. Oh, praise the name of Jesus, he's not finished. One last thought. We're not alone. Look at verse 20, the last half. And behold, I am with you sometimes, occasionally, What's it say? Always. You know, I was always taught when you're, I was taught, I wasn't always taught, but I was taught when you took a standardized test, when it says always the question, its answer is, it's wrong. This is a case where it's completely right. Jesus said, I am with you when? Always. To the end of the earth. Let that sink in. From time to time, a person answers, from the time a person answers the call of God to follow Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit within us. And I'm so grateful for that. But I'm also grateful that the truth is this, he serves as my protector. What a thought here to grasp that everywhere you go, every move you make, every action you take, Jesus was right there with you. He doesn't leave you. He doesn't forsake you. This leads me to this thought, and I'll wrap it up. A follower of Jesus, I believe, is happiest when they live every moment unto the Lord. Let me explain what I mean by that. We don't talk about this in church often, but when we answer the call of God, there is something amazing that happens in that moment. Do you remember when you trusted Jesus as Savior? You say, well, I was only seven, I was only nine, I was only 10, I was only 14. But do you remember that moment? All of a sudden you go, something's different. And you really couldn't explain what it was because you didn't have the words for it. You didn't have all the spiritual jargon yet to put in there. You know what I'm saying? But here you are. You go, something's different. You know why that is? It's because the Holy Spirit's come to live within you. He's come to indwell you. He's filled you with his presence. And you're going, wow, this is good. And you run around and tell everybody. And they go, oh, you'll get over that eventually. Don't worry. You'll calm down, you know. 
Oh, I pray that we don't ever calm down about Jesus. But here's what I want you to catch. We're not the same. We have a new name. We have a new reality. We have a new master. As Jesus said in the Gospels about those who follow him, John 17, 16, they are not, not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We're different. We're different. Nobody told you when you trusted Jesus, if you try to live outside of following God, you're going to be miserable. Can I tell you something? When you trust Jesus and try to live outside of what God has for you, you will be miserable. And the inverse of that is also true. If you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but you can live your life under yourself as a pagan the way the world does, and there's no consequence and no frustration and no sense of, eh, something's wrong. common phrase I've heard this year as many of you are able to come back and gather with God's people is this. I I just can't imagine how I got through with all this without being with God's people. What a blessing it is to be able to come back and to be here. I believe with all of my heart the most miserable people that I've ever met in my life were those who said, yes, Jesus, I'm going to follow you and then went and did something else. That's because the Holy Spirit is within you going, what in the world are you doing, knucklehead? Stop doing this. Stop doing that. Why are you going? And you just fight all the time. I'm not even, I think I'm convinced that a lost person who lives their life for themselves may actually be happier, at least in this world, than those of us who trust Jesus but try to do it on our own because we're fighting with God. So how do you know you're a follower of Jesus? There has to be a moment when you trust him. You say, well, I've always been a follower. No, you haven't been. We're born in sin. We're born with a bent away from God. Something has to change. A moment has to change. A time has to change. That has to change. Have you trusted Christ personally? Have you trusted him with all of your life? Do you remember that moment? You go, I don't remember the date. I don't remember. For the longest time, I didn't know the date was February 17th. I had to go back and research as an adult to figure out the exact date. But I remembered the moment. Why? Because it was important that I trusted Christ. And then have you seen him working in your life, carrying you through, moving you forward? Do you remember trusting him and now have you seen him work in you? Maybe you're here today and you go, you know, I, I've been fighting against God. I, I seem like I'm fighting with everybody. Maybe that's because you're fighting with God. Maybe it's time to not call a truce, but to surrender and say, God, I want you to lead me. I've been fighting against you since whenever. I want you to lead Some of you, you need to trust Christ. Many of us, we just need to say, God, you're the boss. You're the leader. And I want to do what I can to make a difference in this world by trusting you. Father, we thank you for your word and what it teaches us. And we pray, God, as we spend just a few minutes contemplating what maybe you've spoken to our hearts, that, God, you'd reveal to us what decision we might need to make. Some, it may be a public decision. For many...